Under the glow of the very bright lights, I turn my face towards the warm night sky. And I'm not afraid of a thousand eyes when they're above five hundred smiles. Oh, I used to think, what wouldn't I give for a moment like this? This moment, this gift. Oh, now look at me and this opportunity is standing right in front of me. But one thing I know, it's only part luck and so. I'm putting on my best show. Under the spotlight, I'm starting my life. Big dreams becoming real tonight. So look at me and this opportunity. You're witnessing my moment, you see? Wow, that was another great song by Sia. It is called Opportunity. I am almost certain and convinced that when she wrote this song, she was talking about private pension funds. It is so unbelievable. I am not sure how she knew. Her song about opportunity is a great segue to allow us to discuss further about the opportunities within a PPP. So here we are. We are at the last segment. So part number three, where we discuss the different opportunities and the types of assets that could be held inside this PPP. So let's not waste time and introduce our guest back again, Mr. J.P. Laporte. Here we go. How's my financial health doc? Welcome to the Financial Literacy Podcast for Healthcare Professionals where financial security and wealth topics are not a taboo. So we mentioned all the nice things and good things about what this could do. So now let's just come to what exactly we can do inside a PPP. So what can we invest in? Ah, yes. Well, unlike the RRSP that's caught by those qualifying investment rules that I was talking about, the PPP is governed by what is called the federal investment rules. So these are the rules found under the Federal Pension Benefits Standards Act 1985, and they're very very permissive. You can invest in virtually anything from real estate, land, bullion, derivatives, private equity, uh, mortgages secured on land, unsecured mortgages, and then the regular stuff that everyone else is doing, stocks and bonds in the stock market and so forth. So it's a very, very um, liberal regime in terms of what you can invest in. You know, people, a lot of us are using uh, what we call the the do-it-yourself DIY way. And so a lot of us will invest with, you know, robo-advisors, self-directed accounts and stuff like that. So is this permissible under the PPP or do we have to have a portfolio manager? Well, we do have, right now we have one robo-advisor, which is called a CI Direct and used to be called Wealth Bar. And yep. in fact, a number of doctors are using that right now. So you, we have this robo-advisor option, but um, we Typically, there would be a portfolio manager or an investment advisor associated with the PPP to look after the pension plan, to make sure that it's growing the way it should. A lot of doctors don't have the bandwidth 
you know, after their practice to start checking the markets every day and looking at what's happening and re diversifying and rebalancing. They don't, they don't always have the time to do a good job or to do it at all. So having a professional involved um, helps maintain that wealth. Now, if uh, a doctor or another healthcare professional who's has this PPP, I understand there's a robo advisor that uh, is doing this, but can they also purchase ETFs and index funds through a self-directed account with one of these major banks and contribute that way to a PPP? No, no unfortunately, the um, self-directed RSP model hasn't translated to the PPP world. The banks don't allow these PPP accounts to be set up by people that are not security licensed. Got it. So currently through investment advisors, through portfolio managers, or through a robo advisor. That's right. Or, or, or exempt market dealers like uh, dealing representatives, yep. people that are investing in non uh, mar stock market traded uh, investments. Right. So non-correlated assets to the market. Or, or, or that's not available in the public market where Correct. shares are not traded in the stock market. So the only way to access it is through an offering memorandum, a private deal. Then you need to, you need to have a dealing representative from an exempt market dealer uh, involved to transact on that business. Yes. And so we just had a podcast with uh, one of those exempt market dealers recently. Um, so you mentioned a little bit about the setup. Um, can you just maybe take us through quickly how the setup would look like? So what the legal process would look like, what the accounting process would look like, and the actuarial process would look like? Right. So the first thing that we do when we set up a PPP for, for a doctor is that we prepare what are called the legal documents. So these are the documents that the professional corporation as a sponsor will be um, preparing and, and signing off on. And these documents uh, then get sent to our actuarial providers and they also prepare the initial actuarial valuation report, which is that report we were talking about that allows you to contribute a lot more. Yeah, that gap. That, yeah, and then, and then that, all of that paperwork gets filed with the federal government and depending on the province you're, you find yourself in, um, the provincial pension regulator. And, um, and then it, the plan gets registered with the governments. So the government put their seal of approval to say this is a registered pension plan. So now all the contributions that are made by the professional corporation are tax deductible under the Income Tax Act. The accountant doesn't really play much of a role except in two instances at plan setup just to make sure that what's being done with the corporation makes sense from a broader corporate tax planning perspective so you know if there are other transactions or other things that are contemplated you know the accountant wants to make sure that you know taking money out of the company to put in the pension plan 
won't cause a problem if there were other planning contemplated beforehand. So that's the, the play of a more of a consulting role. And then on an annual basis, the accountant is going to be usually asked, can you provide us with um, the T4 income that the company has declared for the member? Because that allows us to calculate the pension adjustment, which is that measure of tax assistance that the PPP provided and which ends up in box 52 of your T4 slip. So, um, but that's a very, very minute kind of interaction by the accountant. Sometimes when the assets of the pension plan exceed a minimum, uh, max, uh, sorry, minimum amount. So in Ontario, it was $3 million. Then the pension fund itself needs some actuarial uh, evaluation, not actuarial, accounting um, valuation. So we need to do financial statements for the pension fund assets. But that rule is going to be eliminated, well, is now eliminated because the Ontario government yesterday passed Bill 213, which is exempting these types of pension plans from the filing requirements under the Ontario Pension Benefits Act. Even that will now go the way of the dodo bird because we have new legislation that simplifies the paperwork and the administration, at least in Ontario. The actuarial process is done at the same time as the uh, initial setup. That's right. That's right. Okay. We, uh, the actuaries will look at, especially if we're buying back past service. Remember that, that second or I can't remember which third deduction that I was talking about? Yeah. If the client wants to avail himself of this opportunity, then we need to collect historical T4 information. We need to get those tax T4 slips that you know had been issued historically by the company so that we can build this valuation report and demonstrate to the government that you know this doctor earned this much salary from his or her professional corporation in prior years. So we need that. We need to collect their notice of assessment to see if they have any carried forward RSP room that they didn't utilize. We need to collect the RSP statements to see how much do you have by way of registered money right now, because yep. the government wants to know that. So there's a whole bunch of support documents that our team collects from the doctor or accountant, if the accountant has that information handy. And it's all fed to the actuarial team who is tasked with producing that report that it's filed with the legal documents. Now, it's obviously a lot of work uh, and a lot of paperwork that needs to be tracked and all. Usually this process takes uh, how long typically? Well, it depends on how organized the client is and their accountant. We have people who are hyper-organized, have everything at their fingertip electronically. They upload it into our database and with our software, we can produce uh, the legal documents within two days. So that's sort of the best case scenario. Yeah. What, what really happens in practice is a lot of people don't have, aren't so organized. <laughs> and so they don't have their T4 slips. They've shredded them. They misplaced them. Right. They don't remember. They don't have a record of it. 
So then they, we, we ask the accountant because if they've had their accountant for many years, the accountant might have better records. Yes. But if they fired their accountant recently and they hired a new accountant, the new accountant knows nothing about the past. Then we were, we, we can say, well, why don't you go in my CRA online? Yes. You can download it from my, my CRA, but that only takes you back 10 years showing the stuff that's older than 10 years for some weird reason. So if you, can't get it from yourself, your accountant, or my CRA. There's a special form called the AUT-01, which is a permission slip that the doctor would sign authorizing Integris to speak with a CRA and get the historical T4 information all the way back to inception. So this could take uh, somewhere between two days, two weeks to almost two, three months. Actually, longer than that, especially the AUT01, the CRA process, because believe it or not, the government keeps that information on microfiche. Oh my God. Okay. Not even on a computer, <laughs> microfiche. So as with COVID, people working from home, this could take multiple, many months. Many months. Okay. It's a process, obviously. It's very, it's, 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 it's a glacial process. It moves very slowly. But again, remember, how about all the tax deductions. Right. It's the the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, right? So it it takes effort to set it up, but once it's set up, you enjoy the benefits. And so again, once it's set up, what does it mean on an annual basis? What type of maintenance does it require? Very little, especially now that the law in Ontario is changing, there'll be very little to do on an ongoing maintenance point of view because most of the reporting was due to provincial pension legislation. Mm-hmm. So we'll be able to scrap a lot of that and uh, simplify the annual administration. The key one is the pension adjustment piece that I tell you about. When the calendar year ends, so by December 31st, you should know by then sort of what salary was paid during the year. And that we have two months to let the government know, this is the employer, this is the professional corporation as the employer has to inform the CRA of what the salary was. And if there's a pension plan, what is the pension adjustment amount? What is the value of the tax assistance that was provided throughout that year? And there's a formula to calculate that, which we, we take care of. But so that's the, that's just kind of the initial maintenance point is we have to provide that to the CRA. And then there's also an annual filing that's required in by June 30th that is filed with the government that says during that calendar year that just ended, how many contributions were put in, how many disbursements, were there any pensions paid? How much money is there at the end of the year? So there's kind of a, a summary, a, a summary or reconciliation that needs to be filed with with the government, uh, so that would require a signature from the sponsor of the plans for the professional corporation. And then in Ontario right now, but now that the laws changed, the other Ontario filings would disappear. So we're thankfully we finally got the uh, Ontario government to exempt our plans from this, um, these, all this extra paperwork that 
was plaguing us. Uh, we talked about the process and the maintenance. When all this is said and done, uh, what type of fees are we looking at? Sure. How much? We have, it's, it's all over the map because we have some of our portfolio management partners, the ones that the doctor would appoint to look after their assets, yeah. will cover our fee out of their own revenues. Okay. We'll take less money home in order to make sure that we're looked after, but the client doesn't have to pay extra. Okay. So that's one option. So it can go as low as zero. Then we have, you can use one of our insurance company carriers to invest the assets. The lowest annual costs all in is $1,000 a year. So for the setup itself, if you were we'll to use? We don't charge any setup fees. Okay. We scrapped those eight years ago. So okay. we don't charge setup fees. So it's just an annual fee because um, we feel that clients will be with us for the long term. Yeah. Therefore, even though we run the risk that we do all this work, we do thousands and thousands of dollars worth of, of, of work to get the plan set up. And then the client says, thank you. I'll just pay your annual fee. And then I'm going to fire you and take my plan somewhere else. Therefore, bypassing all the setup fees yeah. that other people may be charging. So we're taking that risk. It only happened once in eight years that someone did that to us. So that that's that. And then so 1,000, there's another two or three carriers where it's 1775, 1,775 a year. And then if you're going on our trust platform, not the insurance, but trust platform, this is with the robo-advisor, this is with uh, bank-owned IROC dealers, exempt market dealers, you name it. Yeah. The trust platform is 2,800. So all in all, it could be as low as zero, or it could be as high as maybe even 4,000 maximum. And a 2,800. 2,000 plus, plus the $1,000 annually, or is that already included? No, no. Well, that's, that's every year. That's every year. Yeah. Those, those amounts are every year. So, so it's really, it's really little cost in comparison to the benefits. Well, not only is it low cost, but it's tax deductible as well. Right. For the corporation. Absolutely. Corporation. So it's these amounts that I've quoted you are actually less in real terms because if the company gets a write-off, the real cost is lower. Yeah. But the, the, the tax deductions and the tax refunds that we've been talking about, or the stuff like the pension income splitting, the $18,000 a year in taxes saved by the couple every single year pays for our fee multiple times over. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so actually the, the true cost in every case is zero. It's a negative amount. We're paying, we're putting money in the pockets of our clients. You mentioned something that is really interesting that you mentioned insurance carriers. Uh, but in our discussion about what could be invested inside a PPP, uh, you did not mention insurance products. So no. can someone in, uh, invest in a, let's say, permanent life insurance inside the PPP? We're not 100% sure. We haven't done it. What mm -hmm. we have uh, been able to get in place right now is investing in a 
individual seg fund contract with the capital guarantee and annual resets. Yes. So that's a product that is now in 2020. It wasn't available before. Okay. Now available for the PPP. We are studying and looking into uh, using permanent life insurance policies to f- to fund pension. The pension. But we haven't, and we 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 haven't gotten a straight answer from the regulators as to whether or not this is something that can be done. That might be for another podcast. I may have some updates on that one. But but what you should know is that remember this example I gave you of this uh, 62-year-old doctor who decided to turn on the pension and get $169,000 of pension. That particular doctor no longer needs to get a salary. So whatever the company used to set aside to pay the salary could be used by the corporation as a premium for permanent life insurance policy that's funded by the company. So you can have the PPP and the permanent life policy working side by side, harmoniously, synergistically. For people who did not feel they want to invest in private markets or didn't want to invest in bonds and stocks and they believe in insurance product, if a permanent life insurance would be eligible inside a PPP, and I guess that we'll know in the future when you when you uh, investigate that. But you said something that is also very interesting is that you could invest in a SEG fund uh, inside a PPP currently. So are those SEG funds from carriers that are currently doing SEG funds or only specific ones doing SEG funds within the PPP? No, no. These already do SEG funds for their other clients. It just made those SEG funds available within a PPP account. So what I understand from this particular last segment is that, yes, insurance products are available under PPP. They are, definitely. And we have, in fact, historically, our very first uh, PPPs were all insurance-based. They were all using segregated fund contracts. So we've talked a long time about PPPs, and I've really enjoyed it. I was looking at uh, your website and there are many other benefits that we didn't mention. So if you don't mind, I'll mention them. Is that okay? Sure. Uh, so other benefits of the PPP is we talked about you know higher maximum annual contribution. We talked about flexibility to choose contribution options. Uh, the fiduciary oversight is one of them. Broader investment options. Uh, robust creditor protection. So it's not something that maybe I would like you to address in just a few minutes. We talked about uh, tax deduction. We talked about deduction of interest on borrowing, full service administration, and ability to make additional tax deductible contributions. And so there are many more, I would say, non-numerical benefits of the PPP that you uh, have listed there. And those are important, especially the creditor protection. The Pension Benefits Act provides extra protection to people that have pension plans. This is something that is not available for many people that use an RRSP. Under Ontario law, if you have an RRSP with a bank, with a credit union, with a mutual fund company, with a trust and loans company, those RRSPs do not get creditor protection. If you get sued and let's say someone has a judgment against you in court, 
they can collapse, they can go after your RRSP money. Pension plans have extra protection through the Pension Benefits Act. That's not an issue for our clients. You know, if you have a corporation that goes bankrupt, typically there is a totem pole of priorities as to who gets first dib, dibs on the corporate assets. So you'll have usually the crown is a super creditor, and then you'll have your secured creditors, so the banks who lent money. And then below that, you'll have your preferred creditors and your, your unsecured creditors. And usually the unsecured creditors get nothing. So what's interesting with a pension plan, with a PPP, is that the annual contributions that are owed to the pension fund every year, those amounts rank as a super creditor above the secured creditors of the company. So in the worst case scenario, at least let's say it's a family of four and the total annual cost of premiums of the contributions is 100 grand. The first 100 grand that's sitting in the bank account of the company doesn't go to the creditors. It goes to the pension plan. So that's an extra layer of protection that very few people know about because the amendments were relatively recent uh, to the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act. Um, so, so yeah, so this is, this is Fort Knox. Your pension money is the most secure pot of money that physicians have. I think that's very important to understand. So today we've talked about pensions, retirement, and pensions within the corporation, which is very important because most physicians, believe it or not, think that we don't get pensions uh, and we don't get the regular pension but there's no reason why we cannot set up an individual pension or a pension like this for ourselves. So this definitely is a, I think, amazing option. And to be honest, sounds much better than what other pensions can provide out there uh, for those on hoop or even teachers. It sounds to me like a, a much more solidified yeah. plan. Yeah. In so my mind. you may know that the um, Ontario Medical Association has uh, put together a proposal, I think it's called Retirement Income Plus or something, which is really a group yes. RSP with a tax-free savings account component to it. And then you accumulate monies over the years. And then at the end, you can buy an annuity from a Vanguard. Yes. So yes. that's, I mean, better than nothing, I guess, but it doesn't compare to the PPP. The point is, it's not a true pension. PPP exactly. is a true pension. Well, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Laporte, for uh, enlightening us uh, on these uh, issues and this topic. PPP, uh, personal pension plan, definitely something robust to think about. Do you have any parting words for our audience? If something burning on your chest that you need to get out before, get out of your chest before you leave us, is there anything you would like to uh, impart on our audience today? Yes, it's that ignorance of the law is very costly. We are giving doctors an ability to take advantage of the rules, to help themselves pay less tax, put more money aside for their retirement. And if they refuse to learn about this, then they're doing it at their own risk and peril. Absolutely. So that's why I'm a great proponent of lifelong learning and education. And so 
this is a good start. I think it's it's better than a start. We've actually <laughs> talked a lot uh, about uh, the pension plan today. So again, uh, thank you very much for joining the show. It has been a pleasure. I've learned a lot and I've taken a lot of your time already, uh, Mr. Laporte. Thank you very my much. My pleasure. And there you have it, my young Padme. This is all that we can deliver for you in bite-sized pieces about personal pension plans. And if you want to learn more about pension plans, there's the individual pension plan that we did in previous podcasts. But uh, again, I suggest and recommend that people listen to all of the podcasts on pension plans and decide for yourself which one is more appropriate for you. We did a deep dive on both the IPP and PPP. In my mind, both of these pension plans have advantages that outweighs the RRSP and my favorite torpedo, the RRIF. And so please take the time to listen to all of these podcasts and decide whether these are right for you. In my mind, there should be no much discussion. I believe that pension plans inside a corporation is most likely the right thing to do for most incorporated professionals. If you want to reach out to me, you can go on to my new website, financialhealthdoc.com. Again, it is financialhealthdoc.com or email me at hmfhd2020 at gmail.com. One more time, it is hmfhd2020 at gmail.com. How is My Financial Health Doc podcast is hosted by Dr. Vukit Tran. Dr. Tran is a physician with a special interest in personal financial security and wealth education. Dr. Tran does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through this financial podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. Please confer with your advisor, lawyer, or accountant for specific advice.